Good day, everyone, and welcome to episode 91 of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. Each week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago this week, written by some of the greatest sports writers of all time. In this episode, we are looking at July 19th to 25th, 1971. Hey everyone, you've, you've heard us talk about DraftKings and other episodes, the leader in daily fantasy sports, and how Payday can come every day by entering their contests with huge cash prizes that are always up for grabs. Making a lineup on DraftKings adds excitement to every night, and it's simple to do. Draft your lineup and feel the sweat like never before. Every moment means more with the DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings has paid out over $7 billion to users across the entire sporting world. DraftKings is the leader in daily fantasy sports, so there's no better place to get in on all the action. Now that you know how to play, download the DraftKings app and sign up using the code THPN. That's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network. New users will get a free entry with their first deposit. That's code THPN to get a free entry with your first deposit only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions do apply and see DraftKings.com for all the details. And along with DraftKings, please don't forget about our other sponsors. Newspapers.com, uh, the largest online newspaper archive on the planet, uh, allows us to get all our research done that we get to bring you the great content we have here. And of course, the Breakwall Brewing Company in Port Coburn, Ontario, now open for indoor dining and sipping. And uh, it's they're back to normal, almost normal. It's a great experience. I had uh, dinner there the other night with a good friend, and it was wonderful. So this is another week in the summer of 1971, and it was another week where we had to dig a little deeper to get some hockey news out to you. We did have a bit of news, and let's get to the quick hits right away. The Oakland Seals kicked off the week with news that they had inked three players to their 1971-72 contracts. Signing on the dotted line were young defenseman Ron Stackhouse, who was a rookie last year, and forwards Walter McKechnie and Joey Johnson. Now McKechnie and Johnson were picked up by the Seals in a trade with the Minnesota North Stars. You remember that deal uh, just before the uh, June draft. Leading scorer for the North, for the uh, Seals last year, Dennis Hextall, went to Minnesota in exchange for the two young players. The Seals uh, inked a couple more players later in the week. They signed Ken Baird, who was their first choice in the recent amateur draft. But you got to remember, their actual first choice belonged to the Montreal Canadiens who took a kid named Guy Lafleur. So they signed Ken Baird, he's a defenseman, and fellow defenseman Dick Redman, who's been around for a while, he was also acquired from the Minnesota North Stars in that series of trades they made with the Seals. Uh, the deal that Redmond, uh, that sent Redmond to the Seals ended up having, uh, I believe, Tommy Williams going over there as well, and uh, Seals captain Ted Hampson 
ended up in Minnesota. Baird played 66 games last year for Flin Flon Bombers of the Western Canada Junior A League, and as a defenseman, he had 35 goals and 60 assists. He's a six foot 190 pound defenseman with a good left handed shot. Now, Dick Redmond's 21. He made two goals and four assists in 11 games for the Seals after the trade from Minnesota. It also looked promising as the week began that we might get some clarity on that messed up ownership situation with the Vancouver Canucks. There were rumors of a showdown meeting to be coming this week that would hasten the departure of the men from Metacore of Minneapolis from the Canucks uh, ownership group. But all those rumors on Sunday were denied. There will be a meeting, though. Herb Capazzi agreed. Capazzi, remember, is the guy who rode to the rescue of the Canucks, a Canadian from B.C., very active in the Canadian Football League. He provided the money to allow Metacore to make their latest loan payments so foreclosure would not take place. But as to what was going to happen next, no one yet seemed to know. People in Vancouver were hoping, praying, that... uh, Tom Scallon and Lyman Walters, the two top dogs in Metacore's executive suite, they were hoping that they would agree to give up all of their involvement with the Canucks, but when Capazzi was point-blank asked by Clancy Loranger of the Vancouver province whether that was the case, Capazzi said there is absolutely nothing to indicate that that is in the cards. Capazzi, whose loan amounted to $3.6 million to Metacore, said that he did expect to meet with Tom Scallon this week, probably in San Francisco, but he said the topics would be our franchise in the Western Hockey League and some of the things we talked about before the original deal, stuff like that. So it doesn't look like we're going to get clarity this week. And further with the Canucks, got. Canucks general manager Bud Poyle continued negotiations with Alan Eagleson on the salaries for next season for four of the team's top players. Poyle said, we had a delightful three hours. He described the meeting as worthwhile, although nothing yet had been settled with these guys. Poyle said that Eagleson still had to talk to the players about numbers that Poyle had mentioned. The Canucks were also found to be working on a contract for veteran Andy Batgate, whom the team acquired from Pittsburgh by way of the reverse draft. And if you remember in the June draft was selected by American Hockey League Rochester. Andy's told confidants that he will be coaching in Europe next season, that he's tired of the grind of the NHL, but Vancouver general manager Poyle figures Andy would look really good on the point on the Canucks power play and in fact would run their entire power play unit. If you're a fan of junior hockey, like most of us were back in 1971, this news item was welcome to our ears. The Canadian Amateur Hockey Association announced that the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series would once again compete for the Memorial Cup in the spring of 1972. CAHA President Joe Kriska said the OHA, the Western Canada Junior Hockey League, and the Quebec Junior Hockey League unanimously agreed to participate in the East-West Playoff for 
Denver first-level teams during a meeting on Thursday of this week. Although final details remain to be worked out, Kriska said that the series would be held next May. The OHA had refused to play in the Memorial Cup last season because the Western League uh, used overage players and the CAHA allowed it. Last season, Western Canada Hockey League teams were allowed to use four players over junior age or fewer, while under the jurisdiction of the CAHA. Most teams, however, did not take advantage of that ruling. Following the meeting with representatives of the three leagues this week, Kriska said he was impressed with the cooperative spirit in reaching a solution to a problem which has harassed Canadian junior hockey in recent years. OHA back in the Memorial Cup, and that's great news. If you were a Los Angeles Kings fan this week, you got some good news as well. The Kings assured themselves of having two veteran centers for the 71-72 NHL season with the announcement that Bob Pulford and Ralph Backstrom had signed their new contracts. Pulford, now 35, will be starting his 16th National Hockey League season, his second with the Kings. He missed 19 games last year with a knee injury, but still managed to score 17 goals and 26 assists. Backstrom is uh, a year younger, 34. He came to Los Angeles from the Canadians back in January and in 32 games he scored 14 goals, 13 assists with the Kings. Now you remember the reason the Kings got Backstrom was that the Habs were trying to help the Kings improve their record so they would finish ahead of the California Golden Seals, thus ensuring Montreal who owned the Seals' first draft pick of having the first overall choice in the amateur draft. Kings also let us know that they will return to Victoria, British Columbia this fall again to train for the NHL season. The training camp will open on September 11th and that was according to general manager coach Larry Regan who said we chose Victoria because the climate there is very similar to that of Southern California including amateurs, we expect to have about 75 players in our training camp this year. The members of the Kings Farm Team Springfield of the American Hockey League will also be participating in the Victoria Drills. And if you're having 75 guys on hand, you pretty well had to figure that. The St. Louis Blues signed the man they hope will be their franchise player this week. Gary Younger, the long-haired center acquired by the Blues from the Detroit Red Wings last season in that trade for Red Berenson, signed his contract for the 1971-72 campaign. That announcement was made by General Manager Lynn Patrick. No figures were disclosed, but uh, we did find out from a couple of people who were digging that Unger's salary was expected to be in the area of more than $50,000 for the season, but that also includes bonuses. Unger scored 15 goals and 15 assists in only 28 games for the Blues after joining them on February 2nd. He had previously collected 13 goals and 13 assists for the Red Wings, so he had a season total of 28 goals, 28 assists, but the Blues expect him to improve drastically on those totals in a happier environment than which he played in when he was in Detroit. The Blues also signed the Plager brothers Bob and Barkley. Uh, that now gives the Blues four players that are in the fold so far. Now, Barkley and Bob Plager are both defensemen, as everyone knows, and both tough guys. And when they're on the ice, opposing players must keep their heads up. 
The Red Wings made a few changes this week. Uh, they made a signing on the ice, but some changes off the ice. And they are, according to team management, being made in the interest of fan safety. The Red Wings announced on Wednesday that all night games other than Sunday will begin at 7.35 Michigan time instead of the traditional 8.05 starting time. Sunday night contests will continue to start at 7.05 p.m. In addition... Olympia Stadium General Manager Lincoln Cavallari announced that 39 new lights are being erected outside the building, uh, that the parking lots will be lit up better than Times Square to protect fans returning to their cars in that rough Detroit West District that the Olympia is located in. If you ever got caught late at night in that area, you know exactly what we're talking about. The Red Wings are trying to look after their fans, at least in the area of fan safety. Assigning this weekend an important one for the Detroit club, Alex Delvecchio agreed for a contract calling for about $75,000 to play in his 21st season with the Red Wings next season. Delvecchio is 39 and he is the captain of the Red Wings and the fifth player for Detroit to sign his contract this year. Four players, including superstar Gordie Howe, are continuing this year on multi-year contracts that carry over from the previous season. This is news out of Vancouver, but not about the Canucks. Vancouver millionaire Peter Graham is getting on the thin edge of the financial wedge into the sports action around North America. The 46-year-old head of Graymont Limited Investment Firm has offered to put up securities to guarantee $740,000 in rent and $100,000 in advance rent and working capital into the operation of the San Diego International Sports Arena. That facility is where the San Diego Gulls of the Western Hockey League currently play. There's been a big controversy in San Diego about this arena and in fact it was thought that the San Diego NBA franchise was going to be moving to Houston of all places. Well later that week Graham actually took control of the arena and he told people that his main goal is to bring a National Hockey League franchise to that West Coast city. The operators of the San Diego Gulls always have been interested in an NHL franchise, apparently. In fact, back in the early 60s, San Diego was one of a group of cities who were threatening to establish or actually turn the Western Hockey League into a major league circuit and, and raid players from the NHL. That, of course, is what spurred the NHL to expand uh, to bring in San Francisco or Oakland and the LA Kings in 1967. So it looks like that the uh, city of San Diego could quite possibly in the future have a Canadian behind a National Hockey League franchise in that city. Philadelphia Flyers added a former player to their front alpha staff this week, and it was a very popular choice. Jerry Melnick, for the last three years, the Flyers' Western Canada scout, has been named administrative assistant for the National Hockey League club. Jerry Melnick is now 37. He had to retire from playing a couple years ago because of a heart problem, so he was doing scouting in his native Western Canada. Well, 
General Manager Keith Allen of the Flyers says Jerry will start his duties on August 1st. Allen said that Jerry's duties will include assisting with the team's travel schedule and also helping to coordinate all the pro and amateur scouting for the Flyers. Welcome back to the big leagues, Jerry Melnick. Every week we seem to find something goofy that Stan Fischler puts out, and this is this week's installment, where for some reason he's taken shots at Bobby Russo, recently traded to the New York Rangers. He calls these the Rangers Papers, uh, which of course is a reference to in 1971 that controversy in the United States about the Pentagon Papers. And he says, wouldn't it be nice if someone unearthed the new New York Rangers version of the Pentagon Papers? Then all Gotham Shinny fans who pay $8 a ticket would understand precisely what went on behind the scenes in the inexplicable Bob Nevin to Minnesota for Bobby Russo deal. Ranger GM coach Emil Francis developed his latest in what some observers consider a long line of credibility gaps when he announced that Russo can do more things than Nevin. Really? According to Stan? Fischler writes that Russo cannot score as many or more goals than Bob Nevin, based on last season's stats. He's right there. He can't get more assists. Based on last season's stats, he's right there. He can't play a better defensive game, nor can he kill penalties more competently than Nevin. That's debatable. Russo is two inches shorter and 20 pounds lighter, so he doesn't fulfill the heavyweight image. Francis likes to tell people he emphasizes. Of course, if you know anything about running a hockey team, you don't have a team full of heavyweights. There are skill players that are needed as well. Stan Fisher allegedly would know that. So who, Fischler says, is Francis kidding that Russo for Nevin is an even trade? Now, just what Nevin did wrong to inspire his deportation to Minnesota is a question that has been bugging Bob a little more than little. Now, Fischler didn't talk to Bob Nevin. Make no mistake about that. What he's writing on here is about a column that Milt Dunnell had in the Toronto Star where instead of Stan Fischler sometimes posts... Uh, uh, articles or sells articles to the star but he reads the star and most of his stuff he knows what's going on if he reads Milt Dunnell and Nevin had told Milt Dunnell that he never got a word from uh, Emil Francis about that deal of course Nevin was uh, and has a playoff uh, record to prove that he's so much better than Bobby Russo this is Fischler's main point Russo will not help the Rangers during the playoffs as much as Bob Nevin would. So there's no credibility there, according to Stan Fischler. Well, I hate to give out spoilers, but in this case, I want to just point out how off-base Stan Fischler was in this one. Well, here's what we had. Russo outscored Bob Nevin in the 71-72 season by 21 goals to 15, and he had more points than Nevin, 57 to 34. In the playoffs... Bobby Russo, the little guy who can't do anything, had 17 points in 16 games for the Rangers in the 72 playoffs. Bob Nevin played six games for the North Stars in the playoffs and had two points. Now, there's a lot of context that you have to go on here. I don't think Bob was happy in uh, in Minnesota. And Bob, by the way, is one of the real, real good guys in hockey. I had a chance to talk to Bob several times uh 
over the uh, past 10 years. And he always answered a lot of questions about different trades and things quite well. Bob Baba did not have a great year in Minnesota. Bobby Russo was everything. Emil Francis said he would. He killed penalties during the season. He played the point in the power play. They used him at center and on the wing better than uh, the North Stars had used him. And uh, actually all Stan was trying to do here was, of course, stir up a little controversy, get his brand out there in front of hockey fans who really might not be paying attention to the words he put on the paper. Well, every hockey player's career must come to an end, whether you play in the big leagues or in the minors. And three more guys this week latched onto some minor league coaching posts after their playing days were over. Parker McDonald, who had been coach of the Cleveland Barons, a former NHL star, has been named the general manager and coach of the new New Haven American Hockey League franchise, which will enter the AHL in the 72-73 season. The New Haven team will have a working agreement with the Minnesota North Stars of the NHL. And McDonald, who's now 38 years old, uh, he wound up his career with the National Hockey League with Minnesota. And of course, that's what the connection is there. He had previously, as we mentioned, been coaching the Cleveland Barons. With McDonald moving on to New Haven, uh, the Barons were expected, by the way, to announce that general manager John Muckler would probably take over behind the bench. Now, another new coach in the minors was Lloyd Hinchberger. Not a new coach, but coaching a new team. Hinchberger has been named coach of the Tampa St. Petersburg Eastern Hockey League team. I think they're going to be called the Suncoast Suns. Hinchberger's now 40. He has been in hockey for 22 years, and the last four years, he coached the now-defunct Nashville Dixie Flyers of the Eastern Hockey League. His club was won playoff burst three times. Lloyd Hinchberger was one of the toughest hombres ever to put on skates in any form of professional hockey in North America. A bit of a cement head at times, but I'll tell you this, opposing players did not want to tangle with Lloyd Hinchberger, and he likes his teams to play the same way. And we go from a goon to a pretty uh, skilled player getting a coaching job. A minor league hockey star, Orville Tessier, was named coach of the Cornwall Royals of the Quebec Junior Hockey League. Tessier spent the past two seasons coaching the St. Louis College Roadrunners, and he played briefly in the NHL with the Montreal Canadiens and the Boston Bruins. Orville was a member of the Memorial Cup champion Barry Flyers way back in the year I was born in 1951, and he also played pro hockey with the Portland Buckaroos of the Western League, the Clinton Comets of the Eastern League, and the Quebec Aces, and also the old Kingston Aces of the former Eastern Professional Hockey League. Uh, in the 1960 seasons playing for Kingston, Orville Tessier had one of the great pro seasons. He scored 59 goals and had 67 assists. And this, by the way, uh, will lead to a coaching post at some point in the NHL. A lot of speculation around the NHL these days on whether this retirement that John Ferguson recently announced will hold as well as the last one did, which is to say not at all. Kevin Walsh of the Boston Globe, uh, very interested. He got a hold of John Ferguson, and this is what he found out. Kevin writes, there won't be any more comebacks for rugged John Ferguson. The Montreal left winger who retired and unretired this past season 
won't play it again, Sam. Fergie said that I signed the papers for my retirement. Uh, he was at uh, the Bay State Raceway where he has a couple of horses running. You, everybody knows Fergie's first love is the ponies. Now, according to NHL rules, Fergie was voiced to are very uh, quick to point out that if he did change his mind and wanted to come back to the NHL wars, Montreal would have to put him on waivers and the entire league could pick him up for about $40,000. So he says, that's it. Right now, the clothing business is going good and my horses have been doing fairly well. Well, not quite as well as I'd like them to be here at Foxborough, Massachusetts. But you know what? They're giving uh, Fergie probably all his uh, NHL salary, and more. And that's why he's hanging them up. Anyone who watched John Ferguson in the 60s and early 70s knows that he is one of the most intense hockey players that ever laced up skates for the Montreal Canadiens. Well, you know what? He's no different at race time. Walsh observed Fergie during the races at Foxborough, and he said that during that time, Ferguson paces nervously, waiting for the start of a race. He has to leave the table to watch the races. He just couldn't sit uh, and watch a race. He had to stand up. And when another horse pulls out from the rail and cuts his horse off as the field heads down the stretch... Fergie gets upset just like he would if somebody cut him off on the ice. And uh, Walsh wrote that it probably was a good thing for the other driver that he didn't have to run into the winger after the race because they might have dropped the non-existent gloves at that time. Fergie was steaming when his horse got cut off and he told Walsh, you're going to have to excuse me right now. I get upset like this. It's just that I have to win. That's the way it is with me no matter what I do. And anybody who tangled with Ferguson on the ice, they know that. Well, Ferguson told Walsh that that was why winning the Stanley Cup meant so much to him in this past the spring. He said that certainly the Bruins had a great hockey team. It just seems that they could never take us seriously in our first series. Ferguson said that winning the cup was a rewarding thing for him because he felt they won more this spring with less talent than they did winning the Stanley Cup in any other years that he, that he played for them. We have a bit of a World Hockey Association update this week, and this comes from the Santa Ana, California Times. A writer by the name of Al Carr says that claiming definite commitments from franchises in four cities, the World Hockey League, as he called it there, is continuing in its efforts to establish itself as a second major hockey league to the NHL. Dennis Murphy, one of the two organizers who, by the way, this week in, in 2021 passed away, we're sorry to say. Uh, Dennis said that they had definite commitments for franchises in Southern California, Los Angeles or Long Beach, and also in Miami, Milwaukee, Dayton, Columbus, and uh, possibly some Canadian cities. The league hopes to also secure franchises in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Seattle, and San Francisco, and they hope to field teams in the Midwest and, as we mentioned, Canada as well. The Santa Ana paper says that the two men behind the league are Gary Davidson, a 36-year-old corporate investment attorney, 
from Santa Ana. And, of course, he was the first American Basketball Association president. And Murphy, a public relations man who was also the mayor of a small California town a few years ago. Since virtually the sole source of top hockey players is going to be from Canada, that's where they're going to go to get the players, but they're also going to go to National Hockey League rosters and try and entice NHL players to earn some big bucks in the new league. But Davidson also said that European players will be enticed to come to North America and play for the World League as well. Now, Davidson did say that the European players are used to a game of finesse and they're going to have to be taught the body checking style of hockey employed in North America and National Hockey League types kind of scoff at the European players coming over claiming that they would never hold up under the rigors of the NHL game. Davidson told Al Carr that the league plans to begin playing games in October 1972 and they anticipate having 10 to 12 franchises to start off that very first season. Davidson said, we plan a major league effort. We have learned from our ABA experience and expect to have a more solid foundation than we had when we started out the ABA. Now, Davidson was asked if the group plans to raid the NHL for players, and he replied, our league will certainly open a new area of negotiation for NHL players. Davidson said that the World League will use a different contract than the NHL players. He said that now most NHL players sign a one-year contract some similar to what baseball uses. So they're tied to one team in the NHL for life unless that team decides to relinquish its rights. Now the contract does not contain the option clause of pro football and pro basketball where the player can play out his option and then become a free agent. A lot of people were thinking that the this new world, what we know to be the World Hockey Association, not the World Hockey League, would follow the pattern of the ABA in how it was first organized. But Davidson and Murphy said that that's not quite true. Most of the original ABA franchises were held by people who lived in Orange County, California, while Davidson's group will probably be the only Orange County syndicate with a franchise in the WHA. Davidson said he plans to take out a franchise in either Southern California or, get this, Hawaii. When I heard this, I started figuring out how I could send my application down there right away. The funding, Davidson said, will be higher than what the ABA had, uh, and it will be in excess of $10 million for the league. And that means at least $1 million per franchise in cash and performance bonds. The last two NHL expansion franchises, Vancouver and Buffalo, went for six million dollars each. Davidson and Murphy are seeking to place franchises in many cities which now have major league clubs in football, baseball, or basketball, but which have only minor hockey league teams or or no hockey league teams at all. That's why you heard the mention in Ohio of uh, Dayton or Columbus, both definitely minor league teams uh, right now. There won't be a franchise in Santa Ana, California, because the Anaheim, well, actually in in Orange County, because the Anaheim Convention Center is presently the only suitable arena 
and it doesn't have an ice freezing unit, which will make ice hockey just a tad difficult. So the World Hockey Association in the background is is making plans, organizing teams, and as the summer goes on, and especially in the early fall, we're going to have some very, very interesting news about this proposed league. Stay tuned. Maple Leaf Gardens has been called the Carlton Street Cash Box, among many other things, of course, over the years, and there was a lot of uh, controversy, a lot of news, a lot of skullduggery going on around Maple Leaf Gardens the past few years, uh, culminating in uh, income tax evasion charges against the uh, two top guys in the organization, Stafford Smythe and Harold Ballard. And just in the last couple of weeks in 1971, criminal fraud and theft charges against both Ballard and Stafford Smythe. Well, Jim Proudfoot of the Toronto Star files this report just to kind of get us up to speed on what was going on around Maple Leaf Gardens back in the summer of 1971. Uh, He talks about ticket prices and a few other things, including uh, Harold Ballard whining about player salaries. Little did Harold know that that was just the tip of the iceberg that was about to strike pro hockey very shortly. The Maple Leafs had announced, well, Maple Leaf Gardens had announced last week that ticket prices were going up 50 cents across the board for the 71-72 hockey season. Shortly after the news was released, irate subscribers began telephoning the newspapers, angrily pointing out that the increase was a good deal more than the half dollar that was mentioned. Of course, these calls were unnecessary, however, because the sports writers around town were getting a chance to study their own invoices, and the painful news was right there in black and white, or to be completely accurate, in blue and white. Now, to be sure, a $5.50 blue seat, which is the second best of the four gardens categories, was rising to $6, but the 10% retail sales tax previously absorbed in the ticket cost was now being tacked on top of that base price. So there was an additional 60 cents to be paid out on each blue ducat, making the overall hike actually $2.00 and 30 cents for each pair of seats, not the $1 the Gardens has spoken of so innocently. So if you were going to own two seats in the Blues, last year you paid $462 for 39 league games and three exhibition matches at the Gardens. This same package for the 1971-72 season is now going to cost you $500. $54.40. And don't forget that 40 cents. So Proudfoot, of course, got a hold of Harold Ballard, who never uh, found a, a microphone he didn't like. And he asked Hal about the price raises. And Ballard said, the way our costs are rising, we did well to hold it to that. And Ballard sounded actually a little miffed about the whole thing, about the question. Seemed a little offended. That 10% he tried to hold the line to had been uh, 
detected and that he'd done so well. He was upset with Proudfoot for the question. Ballard said, I don't know where it's all going to end. We've got very ordinary players demanding forty and $50,000 in their new contracts. It's simply unbelievable what some of them are asking about. It's crazy what some of them think they're worth. Well, Ballard went on to say that he didn't really blame the players, mind you. Ballard said he would do exactly the same thing if he were in their position, but they're just not being realistic, meaning they're cutting into the huge profits that Maple Leaf Gardens has always been making. But even then, we would find out that even though the Gardens was making such huge profits, that was not enough for Ballard and Stafford Smythe, who had to turn to theft and fraud to even enhance their bank accounts even more. That, according to the Metropolitan Toronto Police Fraud Squad. Well, Proudfoot went on to write that uh, Ballard uh, definitely tried to give the impression to him that it had hurt him deeply to boost the cost of his hockey tickets. Hurt him deeply, even though while he was stealing from the very company for whom he worked. Well, Ballard, he, he wouldn't leave well enough. He kept talking. That's what he did. And uh, Jim Proudfoot kept writing. Ballard said, we had to get the money from somewhere. There aren't that many sources open to us anymore. We're at about the limit of what we can get for seats these days. Fast forward ahead 50 years. You won't believe it, Hal. Ballard said that the only possibility left to increase our television revenue in the U.S. is by expanding our audiences and possibly do a better job of marketing things like endorsements. The players are going to get the money for the endorsements, Hal. That's coming. Well, we can say this. Ballard definitely was telling the truth when he said that he and his gardens buddy Stafford Smythe are soaking their customers for just about all they'll stand. The prices themselves really aren't that out of line. The NHL is first-class entertainment, or was at least last winter in Toronto, and six sixty for a blue seat is not exorbitant or unreasonable at all. Torontonians will line up to pay $10 a head at a touring broad Broadway show and there are many, many more people who would rather jam in the Maple Leaf Gardens than there are in a uh, couple of hundred seats in a, in a uh, Toronto theater. That's why, of course, the price is so high there, and, and the Broadway shows are few and far between in Toronto, but it is wonderful entertainment. Now, don't forget, Ballard and Smythe socket to their clients in other ways as well, with the serenity afforded them by the 6,500 names on the waiting list for season subscriptions. That's right, 6,500 people were in line at that time to get season tickets, and about the only way you could get them is if someone passed away and had no heirs to whom they could will the tickets. In other words, this is the way it's going to be. And if you don't like it, then go ahead and cancel your tickets because there's plenty of other people waiting in line to replace you. Often like they did with hockey players in the, in the 60s. Before the 16s expanded to 12, a player was told, hey, you give 225% every game, not just 100%, because I've got six guys down at Rochester ready to step in and take your place. So you gave it everything you did. You played when you were hurt. You played when you were concussed. You played with broken bones and stitches in your head. 
just so you didn't lose your job. And they're doing the same thing to season ticket subscribers in Toronto as well. You take, for example, the new the uh, three season ticket exhibition games. They're part of the season ticket package. You have to buy them if you own season tickets. If you want your blues for the year, you got to cough up $40.60 for what amounts to three glorified practice sessions. And you're paying top dollar full price for them. Don't forget that the tickets have to be purchased in August. And if you don't meet the deadline, then they might withdraw your privileges to season seats and give them to the next guy in line anyway. So you got to pony up the money before the games are even close to being played. So what this means is that most of the box and rail seats and most of the blues just behind them are fully paid for long before the Leafs ever report to training camp. Misters Ballard and Smythe can put all that cash to work in lucrative short-term investments and collect the interest as part of their profit picture. Or... They could hide them in false bank accounts or whatever other means they did to commit the frauds that the Toronto police are alleging that they committed. So when you take a step back and you look at all this, it seems pretty diabolical, right? Well, Ballard and Smythe learned it from the Canadian Football League where these practices have gone on for years. In fact, Herb Capazzi, remember him? We talked about him at the beginning of the show. When he was general manager of the British Columbia Lions, he said the club couldn't operate without proceeds from the exhibition games when the athletes aren't even on salary and without the interest on the advance subscription money. This is the game plan of the Maple Leafs and other NHL teams as well. There will be more news coming from the Maple Leaf executive suite this summer and early fall. The franchise will be shaken to its very core and stay tuned as we get down and dirty with exactly what happened with the Maple Leafs franchises. We're about to embark for the Maple Leafs on a period that continues here 50 years later of no Stanley Cups and uh, not even an appearance in the Stanley Cup Finals. And you're going to find out the roots of why all this happened as the news comes out later this summer and we will be talking about it. So that is this week's show, everyone. Kind of a fun one. Lots of interesting things going on. And I quite enjoyed talking about the Maple Leaf situation because Jim Proudfoot, very perceptive writer, very plugged in. He knew what was going on there. And the guys like him, Milt, Donald, Frank, are going to report on just what a mess the Maple Leafs became over 50 years. Well, as usual, there will be more player signings, a little bit of player movement that'll take place next week. And we'll have all the moves from the end of July, beginning of August for you. And we will have some more news on the Vancouver Canucks owners' financial problems it is not news of the good variety. It might give us a little clarity on what's going on. It might not. If you know the history of the connection, you know where this is going. If you don't, stay tuned. You'll get some insight into uh, how these things were done in 1971. It, it's a pretty messed up situation. And we'll have a little more on it next week as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. We can't thank him enough for all his hard work 
Uh, Andy produces podcasts of his own and for others if they want them. If you're interested, putting something together, get a hold of me. I'll hook you up with Andy and maybe you guys can put something together. The intro and exit music is provided by the Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, and we thank them for letting us use their music. Other sound effects and musical pieces that you hear in the show are created by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Global Mail, the Toronto Star, and all the fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us every week on the Hockey Podcast Network. Every day we have a Twitter feed during the hockey season at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago on Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And of course you can get us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks again to everyone who tunes in every week. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice